Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Today we have another exciting episode and thank you so much for everyone who's been listening. Our numbers are increasing slowly but surely. And the other cool thing that I see quite a lot is people who are uh, sharing our podcast on Twitter or following us on Instagram at Other Record Labels or uh, my account is at Other Songs and following us and, and sending us messages and all that great stuff. That's so much fun. I also do a, a weekly uh, or bi-weekly recap uh, takeaway video from our episodes for the, from the past couple of months on our YouTube channel. So you can head over there at youtube.com slash other songs and check out some of those videos. And I just share my two minute takeaway from each episode. And that happens the week after each episode airs. So check out that channel we also do studio tours on there if if you're into the recording process of records visit youtube.com slash other songs today's episode is with team love records and this is fun this is exciting this was a label that was started in part with connor oberst from bright eyes and uh, we talked today with nate of team love and i think you're going to pull a lot from this episode what is this town you're in new new pulse new pulse that, and I just quickly did a little Google search. And it looks like a really cute town. Looks really beautiful. It's, it's pretty cute. That's a good way to put <laughs> okay. it. It's um, it's like it's on the uh, west side of the Hudson River. Okay. Um. So the Hudson River, you know, runs straight up from the city, mm-hmm. and uh, the east side is where you have, uh, you know, that's where the trains are. That's where like Hudson is, okay. you know, which is like the sort of like northern, northern uh, Brooklyn, right, you know, right, right, right. and uh, where it's just, it's like on the same side as, um, you know, Kingston and the Catskills and Woodstock. So right, it's, right. It's, it's, and it's a college town. It's got a, you know, SUNY, it's got a campus here. And oh, okay. so it's like students and then a bit of the Woodstock kind of dirtbag hippie thing going on. <laughs> got a bunch of vape shops, but it's also got a couple record stores and a couple bookstores all within like a few blocks of each other. Oh, that's so really it's, nice. It's actually um, great in that sense. So it's you know kind, what I mean? Like It's an artistic cool. town then. Yeah, it's arty and... Um, it's got a bit of an outdoor. There's a lot of climbing near us, like rock climbing. Oh, nice! There's, and so there's like a bit of that. There's a lot of biking. There's a lot of bike trails and and converted train tracks that have that are now bike paths. So oh, cool! There's there's a lot of kind of just outdoor tourism and and active lifestyle shit I've, like that. So I feel like the uh, north of New York is is often overlooked because of of, you know, how, uh, from a tourist standpoint, uh, just because of how, you know, big New York city is. But I went to uh peak skill a couple years ago for mm-hmm. a couple of days and I was like blown away that something like that existed. It looked like a movie set. It was just so interesting. Yeah. It's neat how you can get very small town pretty quickly when you go North, um, from the city, you know, mm-hmm. so yeah. We moved up here 10 years ago from New York and I was not very familiar with this area when we did move here. We moved here, um, sort of, I wouldn't say on a whim, but without a lot of research involved, we just thought, let's, I don't know, let's just try something different. (laughs) And, um, and the Felice brothers at the time were kind of based around New Paltz. Okay, and they were um, a, a band that Team Love had done some records with. So, so um, I had a tiny little. I'd been up here once with to hang out with them. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, versus all the other towns around here, that was this was a town I'd I'd been to. So I was like, well, I know this one place. <laughs> and so you were working in in music in New York, and, and was that? I mean, that couldn't have been a business decision to move. <laughs> out of New York city. Was that a personal decision? No, it's personal. We had, um, we had a bait. We had a child, you know? Right. And, and we were living, my wife and I were living in, um, Manhattan on Washington square and this really fun, Hmm. super expensive, (laughs) 
you know, yeah. beyond our means apartment. <laughs> and uh, we were like, let's move uh, to Brooklyn like you do when you have a kid right. and get a bigger place. And and that was a fucking disaster because there wasn't really like that. That didn't really exist. You okay. know, like maybe you could get like, well, my experience was, you know, you could maybe get like 500 extra square feet <laughs> and maybe save 500 bucks, but you were still basically paying a fortune for right. very little space. Right. And, and the, you know, so we kept looking and looking and going further and further and further out, you know, like, it just, it just kind of eventually we were like, Ugh, you know, yeah. this sucks. <laughs> and, um, so then we just sort of reset our thinking, you know, and we're like, let's throw out that script and think about something else. And then when we started thinking about moving, like actually out of the city, um, and that idea, were you worried it was about how much more adventurous and seemed like much more exciting? Right, so right. We did that when I was talking with Mike Sniper at Capture Tracks. He was telling me how there was these so many labels within the same you know city block in Brooklyn. Were you worried about how that would affect your business, not being so connected to to other people, or be, kind of being out of that major scene and where shows are every night? Were you worried about yeah, that? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I had um. Yes and no. I mean, the, it kind of gets gets to the root of the identity of the label itself, hmm. which was always that I've always kind of treated the label as a um, something that I didn't want in any way to be easily pigeonholed or hmm. classified as a certain type of label, okay. you know? And to the same degree, I never really felt like we were a New York label or really fit with a lot of that. And we mm -hmm. were always based in the East village and Brooklyn was always this, like I always considered it sort of a scene that we weren't really necessarily oh, participating okay. in anyway. I mm. mean, this goes back 10 years and the, and the label started in 2003. So in 2003, there were still like some venues in the East village and, and there was still, um, I don't know. I, I, like, I know what, I know exactly what you're, Thing. And certainly like once we moved upstate and we, it took another year after we physically moved our life upstate to have the label follow, you know, right, we had right. to okay. kind of figure out what we were doing and find like some actual label space. Um, and then once we moved it upstate, like certainly it felt like a lot of the, um, it, 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 it felt that it did get harder pretty quickly to get, um, you know, some of the releases, the attention we thought they deserved. Okay. And I could say you could chalk that up to us not being sort of like in the thick of it or, you know, hmm. having that sort of like social element, you know, mm -hmm. um, or it could just be that, you know, the releases we were putting out weren't interesting to people. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. But, um, <laughs> but I, I have never really felt comfortable with that sort of clubby nature of like, Oh, all the labels are like in Brooklyn being like, you know, labels in Brooklyn. Like I never really felt a part of that or really wanted to be in that. Okay. Thing. That's, I don't yeah, know yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. And you I know? get that. And I mean, listening to a couple of your tracks too, I can, I, I hear what you're saying and, uh, uh sorry, listening to a couple of your records and, and, uh -huh. um, there, there is, um, uh, you know, there is a sort of a, an indie rock Brooklyn sound and this felt a little bit different. This felt, uh, a little bit outside of that. And I, I get what you're saying. That's, that's not completely foreign to me. Okay. So I want to jump back in time. I, I read somewhere or heard that you worked for a major label before all of this and did some pretty signing, serious signings back in the day. Is that true? Like, can you tell me a bit about that? I worked for uh, Sony music publishing. Oh, okay. Wow. I did work in A&R. So I signed artists to publishing deals. Wow. But I did not work for a label. I worked for a publisher. So, oh, okay. Which is the other side of the coin, you know, right. in that sense. Yeah, yeah. But I worked in the 550 building on Madison in the Sony building from about 1996 to 2003, roughly. Wow. And so that, that probably would have been, like, would that have been, like, you know, close to, like, the end of the golden era? It was uh, exactly that. I think that's a safe way to put it. Like, yeah. The, the, I would say when I left and I left on my own volition, that's good. Um, 
I felt that possibly, well, I felt the writing was on the wall. I mm-hmm. didn't really know what was going to happen, but mm-hmm. my sense was things were um, headed towards a pretty large dramatic, you know, shift in a, you know, in some direction that wasn't going to, you know, the status quo was, was not feasible. So a lot of us during that time, you know, there's, there's some people who run labels today who weren't even alive during that time, or maybe not so, but well, maybe, I don't know, but there, there's, uh, there's people who experienced that era and in, in different. And for me, I was one of the, the people who were stealing your music off of Napster when I was in high school. But what, now that you have that behind the scenes, um, you know, you've, you've been there, you were at the end of it. You probably had incredible catering and whatever they spent their money on back then. What, how does that help you with team love in some of the things that you witnessed or experienced or learned back at Sony? Um, I guess, you know, that's, that's kind of a tough question because that was both, you know, you know, a major media company or whatever you want to call them, entertainment company. Yeah. And it was a kind of a microcosm within the company, like the publishing wing of Sony was sort of under the radar to some extent. And we could do, we had a fair amount of freedom. Um, so it was kind of a unique, it was a unique moment, but it was during like, you know, it was still during the heyday Yeah. in a way. Yeah. And, um, and that world, I don't think it really exists too much anymore. Right. Um, I guess one way I feel like it helps me is a lot of the, you know, I don't, a lot of things about the music industry have not changed at all. In oh, terms really? Of just the basics, you know, like mm-hmm. you still kind of need like a good song and I don't know, people have to like it. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> And in that sense, like, also, like, the people who are in the music industry and their motivations and their, um, I wouldn't say it's like a type, you know? Right, right. But in terms of behaviors and the same old kind of stuff that goes on, whether it be good or bad, Mm -hmm. um, exploitative or naive, whatever, that hasn't really changed too much. And being exposed to it at Sony, um, you know, or being, you know, doing that job at Sony and being on the creative side, you know, working with managers and lawyers and labels and publicists and booking agents. Um, you know, in publishing, like I had a, a desk and a, you know, access to some, some resources so I could um, kind of fit myself into an artist's world in Mm. a way where if there was like a they needed help with kind of anything i could kind of jump in and help you know right right. and um so it just exposed me to you know different sides of the business and a lot of that hasn't changed and a lot of the people that are in it haven't really changed i mean their faces have changed Mm -hmm. and their names have changed but the roles and the i don't know a lot of that just repeats. You yeah, know? right. So. That's true. Yeah, that's interesting. So I want I want to kind of connect the dots here with um, how you met uh, Connor Oberst and and how you um, came to work with him, and then and then how and really I'm just kind of putting the pieces together of what people have told me and and what I've read on the internet about how Team Love was formed, and I and there's just a lot of missing pieces for me because I know that you know Bright Eyes is is has had a, a long history with Saddle Creek and, and then Connor, I know is, ha, has some connections with none such. And so I'm just kind of um, curious how this all came together. Could you kind of walk us through that? Sure. Well, in relation to Connor um, and the label, so that starts back with Sony. Okay. Um, I signed Connor to a publishing deal at Sony. Oh, wow. In the spring of 2000 sometime in there. Um, I first met him over the phone in, you know, the winter of 99. And then I went out and saw him perform in Chicago as bright eyes in the winter, like right after the new year, Hmm. right after the millennium. And, um, we did a publishing deal shortly after that. 
Um, so that began our, and was he completely independent our, at that time? He was, this was, um, he was on Saddle Creek. He was preparing fevers and mirrors for release. Oh, okay. So he had, um, that's where he was at, you okay. know? Um, so once we met, um, as I said before, with kind of being, you know, at a desk in midtown Manhattan with some resources and, you know, sort of the ability to jump in where there was the need to help Mm -hmm. with an artist, like with him, things were on the up and I sensed after about a year of working with him and getting to know him that he could really use like a manager, Mm -hmm. you know, he had an agent at that point, he was touring, he was going overseas, he had Wichita Records in the UK, um, which was a, you know, label started by Mark and Dick from Creation. Hmm. Um, not too, you know, right around that same time. Um, and he had Saddle Creek and, and so I took some time to sort of talk to different managers, you know, almost like interview them on his behalf. Um, and nothing really clicked on that front. At the same time, he, at some point in there, he moved to New York, um, Took, he moved into like the spare bedroom in my, I had a two bedroom apartment. <sighs> he moved in there, um, started, you know, getting to know the city, writing. Um, so Lifted came out at some point in there and then he moved to the city and started writing Wide Awake. Mm. And he actually demoed quite a lot of it up at Sony, had like a little uh, demo studio. Um, oh, wow. And he worked on some of it there. And, uh, so anyways, by, by about 2003, um, I had had lunch with a, with like a colleague of mine who was older than me and we had been talking and I was sort of going through, you know, some of the people I had talked to about, you know, about managing Connor and how I wasn't really having any luck. And he said something to me, which I'm sure wasn't this simple, but he was like, <laughs> you should manage him. And I was like, but guy, I'm not a manager, you know, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an A&R guy from a publishing company. And he was just like, yeah, whatever. You right. know, like, he was like, he was like, we're all just what we, we say we are, yeah, you know, like right. basically this yeah. is not, there's no degree. You don't go out and like get qualified <laughs> yeah. for any of this shit. Like you just, you want to be his manager. You just say you're his manager. And then that's that, yeah, you know, and true. <laughs> it kind of stuck with me. It was kind of obvious, but I, I remember that lunch quite specifically sort of, giving me a moment to, you know, to reframe the whole thing. And at that same time, um, Connor had produced a, uh, record at home with the band Tilly in the wall. Um, hmm. and that record, I wouldn't say Sal Creek passed on it, but they didn't have any plans to release it. Okay. Um, and we thought it was awesome. And, so after, you know, a couple like late night hangs at the apartment and talking and this idea sort of took shape that maybe we could start a new label um, and t- Tilly in the Wall would be the, the first release. Mm. And um, at the same time, like I could start managing him. This would mean like resigning from Sony, but basically like, you know, doing something different and starting you know, the two things like kind of came out of the same moment, the label and management was for that me a, with him. Was that a bold move back then? I mean, especially living in New York and I, I imagine that Sony was a, like a nice steady paycheck. Was that a risky move? Well, I, I wouldn't say that cause that would make it sound like I was like brave or something, you know, like <laughs> I was having a, um, I spent years at Sony, like going to work every day, assuming I would be fired that day. Cause they'd figure out that I was not like, <laughs> at all the right person <laughs> for this job. You know, okay. this was like during like new metal and all this shit. And I'd be, you know, they'd be like, what do you think of the fucking POD record or something? Yeah. And I'd be like, I, you know, I, I would kind of, like, I didn't know. I mean, I knew the music in the sense of like, I knew I hated it mm. and I knew it was expensive. Yeah. To be yeah. involved with it. You know what I mean? This is all like, there was million dollar deals left and right for the publishing, for the, for the, the label, you know, mm. and all this stuff. So I just kind of, did what a lot of people in corporate structures do, which is like you, you learn how to, you know, 
non-commit while sort of seeming like you know what you're mm, doing. You know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. you don't really like put your neck out. At the same time, I was signing like quite a lot of music um, on the side that I thought was cool, but um, but uh, I guess like to me, I was like I'm not really bringing anything to the to the table here that's like making them any money. You right, know, so right, I see. Okay, so at some point they're going to be like this fucking guy. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. why is he here? Like he doesn't even like Limp Bizkit or whatever. You know, <laughs> like. But then um, what happened just real briefly was I had signed a guy um, named Jesse Harris, and Jesse he was the first guy I ever signed to Sony, mm. and he ended up um, with he he wrote. Um, about five or six of the songs on the first Nora Jones record, including the single. So oh, in the come same kind of oh, week, not week, in the same kind of year, like I went from kind of being like the scrappy young guy at the label or at the you know the company who didn't, I don't know, yeah, who yeah, thought yeah. he was going to get fired every day. To they were like, oh shit, like you got us like a Grammy <laughs> for this Nora yeah. song. And we're making some money and you got Connor and like, it looks like Rolling Stone and Spin and all those people like that, dude. And I'd signed like Glassjaw that were getting some love. Wow. And so suddenly Sony was like, oh, this guy's like, he's pretty fucking good. And they, you know, <laughs> and they like gave me like a, you know, better contract and more money. And it was kind of at that point that I left, you know? Oh, wow. Like it was only like within a year of like, like a year after all that happened like Nora and Jesse winning all their Grammys mm -hmm. and, you know, lifted had come out and gotten a lot of love and whatever. So I left Sony on a, like kind of on a high note, you know, okay. where I went from thinking I'm going to get fired to thinking like kind of the same, having the same insecurities, but being like, now they actually think I'm, I've got some sort of skills. Right. And they're going to, but it wasn't, again, I didn't like leave because I was like worried that Sony was going to like, okay, know, right. Discover me what I saw going on in the industry was we would be in meetings and there'd be discussion about going back to your reference to Napster. We would be discussing, or I was witnessing that moment when the, um, RIAA was suing mm -hmm. some, individuals. Yeah, yeah. Like suing, suing grandma because <laughs> fucking some kid had downloaded a bunch of shitty records onto her computer and they sue her <laughs> for like $20 million or whatever that, yeah. formula was that yeah. they were like they somehow decided was like the gold standard of yeah. and then grandma would be like oh well I only got like 3800 bucks in my account and they'd be like alright give us that you know <laughs> and I was like well this is totally wrong you've just you've turned your consumers into like a target yeah. you know and you're you're aggressively like you know like hurting them oh, so totally. that seems like a bad idea mm -hmm. and just in general, it was obvious that like shit was about to, you know, go get flipped upside down. Right. So, right. So I left kind of because I thought the idea of starting Team Love and, you know, I was working, I was spending a lot of time with Connor and doing a lot of the managerial stuff for him at that point. Mm -hmm. So to me, I was like, I'm enjoying this. This is fun. I think this artist is like a once in a lifetime artist, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I want to help him in any way I can because. But you know, I'm invested in this emotionally and, and I think I can do some good here and I don't see anything at Sony really like being that great other than like a paycheck and an expense account. And did, I don't know if that's going to last long anyway. Right. So. Did you ever think that, that there, there would be a, a future home for Connor at team love? Did you, or like, what was your no. thought there? No, 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 we didn't. I didn't ever, that was never like a plan or mm -hmm. like a, it was more just like the, the, just the basic, you know, dream of having your own label, you know? Okay. Yeah. And I mean, Connor had been, had been one of the founders of Saddle Creek. So he'd kind of been through that before. And he also, you know, had, um, like he's just someone who, you know, Bright Eyes was always kind of like a fluid group of people right so so many people that came through the bright eyes world and either performed on records or toured with him or supported bright eyes on tours um as like an opener like there was just a lot of like really talented people in music that that came that came through his orbit hmm. and um 
the Team Love was was set up to be like a, a just a normal record label. But um, if you look at like especially the first you know twenty or so releases, a lot of them are in that kind of Connor Oberst orbit. Right. You know, at okay. the time, that's really cool. You know, so like Don Darrow had been like an old friend of his. They had toured together. You know, they'd known each other before I ever got involved. You know, Tilly were members of Park Avenue, one of his earliest bands, and um, you know, friends from then. Um, you know, that's such an interesting thing because when I think when young artists think, "How do I get signed to a label?" the answer isn't sending an mp3 to a to an email address the answer is to get into a community and get into an, uh, a collective of artists um because i've seen that in so many times even over the decades where where one artist does really well and then all of the the artists in their families that support them uh, end up finding a way to get their art out too we've seen that a couple times i think it's a really cool thing that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and with Team Love, like he brought, I would say, like kind of his family, which was maybe like you know sort of two thirds of what we were doing. And then I brought like my you know quote unquote family, which was something like the Craig Wedren record, the singer for Shudder to Think, another one of our early records. Like I had looked after Shudder at Sony. I hadn't signed them, but I inherited them mm-hmm. from the previous mm-hmm. person to hold that job, and. Um, so I knew, you know, I knew the Shutter people. So Craig had a solo record and, you know, or Griff from Super Furries, like a band that I knew through, um, you know, friends in the UK. And so, so each of us kind of brought our own. Um, you brought POD you know. with you. Yeah, I brought POD. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we did that acoustic POD record. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so that's totally right, though. That kind of community you know your friends or you got this kind of like network of of people that you've come up with and um certainly that for the first like you know chapter of the label that was our you know that was kind of our our posture and then you know as it moved along like uh things changed but you know jenny our first like you know the jenny lewis record which to this date remains the biggest record we ever did wow that again exactly as you're describing like that's in the you know that was in the family you know that was a because of connor's rilo kylie had toured with bright eyes you know mm-hmm. all around the world and uh the conversation actually to do jenny's record was a um conversation that was happening before we even started the label and a uh I'm sure I'm remembering this probably a little wrong, but I'm 90% sure Jenny actually named Team Love. Oh, as really? We were, like, as she <laughs> and Connor and I were walking from her apartment to like Trader Joe's one day in Los Angeles and discussing starting a label <laughs> and putting out a potential solo record of hers if she ever wanted to do one. And I'm pretty sure she threw out that idea wow. for the name at that point. Wow. So, um, but yeah, and sh- and she go. has a record out this week, I think, is it? Or yeah, she has a new one coming. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know inc- the date. Yeah, that's but I incredible. Think it, yeah. yeah, and she so named it. That's funny. What was Connor's involvement in the early years? Um, his involvement was always, I would say, like on the creative side. Mm-hmm. You know, like he would bring ideas in, bring bands in, take bands out on tour. Um, that kind of thing, you right, know. Right. Um, the label was run out of my apartment in New York that whole time. So, you know, we never like expanded to like really have a staff. We had a woman named Rebecca who was started as an intern and became like a sort of essential, you know, person in the label mix for a long time. And so and then we hired out for PR and radio like you usually do. Okay. Radio. And so, so what was uh I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think back. So 2003. So, I mean, iTunes would have been like coming into full swing at, at this, at this point, 2003 to 2005. Is that right? Yes. And, yeah. and were you guys, um, embracing that and, and trying to embrace digital faster than the, the major labels were, was that something that you were looking into? Well, at the time we, one of the, one of the, the label kind of started with like a few, like kind of, you know, 
the the code of team love, you know, like our founding, you know, code of principles and ethics or whatever. And um, which was like a page in, in the notebook, you yeah, know, yeah. and one of those one of those rules was like, we only do one off deals, you know, one record deals. We don't want to tie anyone down for any anything beyond like a single record. Wow. And we don't want to be tied down for anything beyond, you know, yeah. another one was we will release every record for free digitally through the label's website. Wow. And that was um, that was completely in response to, again, that kind of phenomena of the of the major yeah you know yeah. groups suing there was a really funny article, like business i think it was business insider like some you know some crazy ass magazine like that like interviewed me at the time and we're like you're giving away your your shit for free like that's fucking crazy you know and <laughs> i don't know i probably yammered on about you know some that bullshit, was a but, that was a big deal back then, though. I mean, anybody. Well, at who, the time, yeah. At the time, there wasn't a downside to it, as far as we were concerned, because we thought there was like an exponential exponential relationship between the number of people who had the music and the number of people who were buying uh, a CD or a record or going to a show and mm. buying a shirt. You know, mm-hmm, I mean, yeah. an invert an inverse exponential relationship. You know, but we were like, if we give away a hundred downloads then uh-huh. maybe five to ten percent of those people will spend money on the band in some form whereas if we give away nothing then nothing will happen or oh, you know what i mean fair. it was kind yeah. of that type of logic and there was no there was no streaming at all at the time mind you so so this was like you know there was the itunes store but we didn't really see the two in competition because we figured if you were an itunes store user then that was kind of your go-to. Right, right. And, yeah, and you there know, wasn't, and, there wasn't as many, like you actually have to think back to in, in, in the early 2000s, like not everybody had a way to play MP3s portably. Like that was, not everybody yeah. owned an iPod in 2003, Absolutely. 2004. I think at that point, probably CDs were still, still had the largest Oh yeah. Chunk of the oh, sure. biggest, biggest wedge in the pie. So that's what you um, would do then. Is that where you would get the money? If you're giving away downloads, you were, w- was every release getting a CD? Were you doing vinyl at that point? We were doing CD and vinyl for everything. And certainly like the majority of the revenue was coming through physical sales. Mm. Um, I would say, I don't know, by the latter half of the decade that had completely shifted to the MP3 store model, you know, iTunes. Okay. And you started um, making least, money off of yeah, off of, and we yeah. and we never really saw like any issue with like the giving away of records with it. It never. I mean, there's no way to you know actually quantify it. I don't think, but it never felt like we were you know lacking in MP3 sales, right? Because of that, and as well, the whole policy kind of fell fell apart because we weren't like you know we weren't like dicks about it. Like if an artist did not want to do it, mm-hmm. then they had the option to sure, not do it. You know, yeah. we just basically said, this is kind of our philosophy. We don't think, we think this whole like war on piracy is, is fake and mm. we would prefer not to be associated with it. So we are going to give everything away for free on the site. Treat that as a promotional tool, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. or stunt if, if yeah. you prefer. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and just watch our hands of the whole gross mess you know yeah and um but eventually more and more artists were like i don't want to do it and it got to the point where um that was maybe you know like every other release and then it felt like it wasn't really a thing anymore right you know that's right yeah we tried to evolve it into something called the library which was like a sort of a you know like rotating a set of releases that every few months would change you know Mm. that were free and we did that for a few years, but that never, you know, it just like, it all just, you know, yeah, no, it went, it, went kind of away because, you know, you fast forward another three or four years and, and downloads themselves are becoming quickly like right. obsolete. One, so, of the, one of the shortest know. lived formats, which is so strange. It, it had such a huge yeah. impact on the industry, but it, it, it itself as a format didn't really live very long. No, not at all. And but I, there was a time when it kind of plateaued and we could sort of be like, okay, like the iTunes store is going to bring in this much revenue every month. That's kind of a, a nice, hmm. it created like a moment of stability mm-hmm. after the CD, after the CD got, you know, nuked. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that, you know, I would say for five or six years, there was like that, that allowed us to at least like 
continue to function in a normal way, you know? I, I love what you're um, talking about, about the free downloads thing, because, and it's something I haven't really thought about, but there was such a a quick change in the perception of value for customers because the technology of the MP3 hasn't really changed. I mean, from when it came to when it's now, it's, it's really is the same type of file, but there was so much press around any band who would do something for free. Like uh, I think, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot in 2001 or 2002 was given away for free online. And, and the mm-hmm. in rainbows thing was a huge press thing. And now like giving away something for free, it, it, like you say, it just doesn't matter. Everyone has a subscription. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. It's well, so it was always a little bit, it was almost like the words, like the language didn't really fit with what was happening because mm-hmm. you were, you would monetize these things. And so they had value for a moment, but they also had an endless you know, yeah. qu- quality in that they didn't actually exist. Yeah. They, the supply of them was infinite. <laughs> yeah. They cost nothing to make because they didn't actually get made. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. they were sort of like, and if you dropped your iPod, iPod in a puddle, they all went away. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So it was sort of like, I feel like, I feel like sort of equating them to the physical album, which they, you know, which they um, kind of killed and, you know, followed in terms mm-hmm. of the timeline is was was always slightly like i don't know you know what i mean like they didn't, rem- it wasn't really linear it was more the shift was much more dramatic right. and they were sort of like just the tiny little preamble before we entered like the true you know <laughs> do you remember uh, do you remember the itunes lp you lp remember, remember itunes lp it was like a some releases got this like it was a special download that would come with a PDF booklet and it would come with like maybe some videos built into iTunes. Oh, Do you yeah, remember yeah, those? Totally. It was, it was yeah, such yeah. a short lived thing. Oh, yeah, it's so no, I know crazy exactly to, what you mean. to think about that now. You know, I, well, there I, was, there yeah, was a ahead. lot of funny things that you forget went on back then. You know, I mean, I think if you, I might be totally wrong about this, but I think if you trace back the orchard to their roots, they were like a company that did those kind of cus- like a custom made CD. I forget the name of that company. Oh, but you yeah. basically go online and you would pick like 20 songs yeah. that you thought were like your jams. Yeah. And then they would send you the CD. So yeah. it was like, and then I think eventually that company turned into the orchard and then the orchard became the orchard and then they became, you know, they kept morphing over and over. But I think originally they had this weird little business model that was like, you know, well, I do. I do we'll, remember. We'll mail you your custom CD, yeah. so you don't have to like. You know, there deal, was. Uh, I guess like you don't have to deal with iTunes. We'll just hook you up. You know, even like, before, um, even before digital, there was a. Um, uh, I remember at a convenience store, and I think maybe it was Pepsi that you could collect your Pepsi points, and then there was a little brochure, and it had like thirty songs, and you just check the songs you want and mail it away, and then they would mail you back a CD. With <laughs> something like that, yeah, maybe <laughs> <It> did. <laughs> oh, it's so crazy. So, now I remember, you know, I was I was watching a video with you, and in this is 2015, so this would have been four years ago, and you were talking about um, you were a little bit worried about Spotify and streaming, and and I remember 2015 was a very significant year because 2015 was when Apple Music launched, and Apple Music gave out three months free of streaming. And I feel like that was kind of the tipping point for streaming because Spotify was something for young people and for, for techie people, but I don't think it really had hit the masses yet. But then when Apple music kind of tipped everybody into streaming, I just personally remember 2015 being a, a very significant year for that. And this is when you were on camera talking about, um, being very ominous about where where you thought streaming was headed and you were it seemed to me that you were a little worried about it. Four years later, how do you feel now about streaming? Uh what was that thing? I don't remember. Like it was for the copy <laughs> <laughs> it was for the uh copyright association. You did this little on camera piece. All I, right. I don't know. I I can't remember. Right, cool. Sorry. Yeah. Must have must have um must have been we should have talked about it in the pre interview. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't remember really. I mean, back then, I'm trying to think like what my sort of like issues would have been or where I, where I thought my, you know, um, I should have wrote down your quote. I I can't. Well, 
I just, I, I got remember, a sense. I remember you were, there was a time where we kind of looked at like, say the film industry as a potential model for how to handle streaming, which meant do like a theatrical release version of the out, you know, equivalent mm-hmm. to the record, which meant like put it out on, you know, LP and iTunes, you know, put it out through all the, all the pay models, yeah. you know, but hold it back from the streams until it's had its theatrical run. Right. right. And then let it go to the Spotify's and the, and the Apple music's in the same way that you would let it go to Netflix or. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember that time. DVD. Yeah. And we, that did not last long. Cause that was, that just didn't mm-hmm. matter. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Cause what that failed to take into account was the people who were already using Apple music and Spotify just weren't going to give a shit what you were doing. You know yeah. what I mean? If yeah. it wasn't on, if it wasn't on their platform, it didn't exist, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. And you could, you could, and we had the same conver- interesting conversation, exact same conversation at, at none such with Connor's upside down mountain record, which was his first record over there. Mm-hmm. And we tried a similar thing and it worked a little bit better there because you've got a very, um, you've got a strong core fan base who will follow you to a medium almost, you know what I mean? Mm, yes, so that's true. Maybe they haven't bought a CD in a year and a half, but if the new Connor records are only going to be available on CD or, you know, through these formats, they might go ahead and buy a CD, you know, yeah, yeah. or they might just wait six months for it to come out on Spotify. By the time we got to the next Connor record, which was ruminations, that was not a conversation being had at all. You know, right. Right. Like it kind of seemed like it, it had been years ago. Yeah, even though yeah. I think it had been like <clears throat> by you know, 2016. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But um, to answer your, your actual question, like what's my kind of current take on yeah, it? I, yeah. I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> like it's like, uh, you know, there's a few things that are like very clear. It's the only, it's the only, um, area that's seen growth, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's probably, if you want to put a shine on it, you know, like, well, that's cool. Like, you know, it used to make us X amount. Now it makes us X plus a little more, you know? Um, and it continues to kind of inch up, um, in terms of revenue. Um, that's really it though, as far as like good stuff. I mean, I like the doomsday sort of scenario. I Mm -hmm. imagine is that none of the streaming, models are really like making money, you know, like mm-hmm. they continue to bring yes, money in as right. a form of investment, but I don't think they're actually like making money. You yeah, know what I mean? That is interesting. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and I think also they have to renegotiate for those large catalog licenses. I don't know, every three, four years. I don't know. You know oh, what I, I mean? See. Like, yeah. you know, initially like they were like, okay, here's hundreds of millions of dollars, Sony and Warner and universal give us everything. And they're like, cool. You know, yeah. Here it is, and so at some point that th- those things have to be constantly renegotiated, and both parties are going to want to improve their positioning in the deal, right? And yeah. at any point, any of those major companies could be like, "Well, you know what? <laughs> you know what? Spotify. Like, if you're not going to like play ball, then we're going to take our you know, two hundred million songs and." we'll see you later because any, anyone can turn off the switch really at any time, you know, like Mm -hmm. in a given, in a given contractual cycle, you know? So, so I wonder about that too. You know what I mean? Like this is a totally different thing than just being like, we've signed you to a deal. We're putting out your record. And now the issue is like, are we going to keep manufacturing it or what, you know, this is like every few years we have to renegotiate for the rights to these giant catalogs and we have to keep, at least these major companies happy mm-hmm. or they could, you know, and at the same time, like an Amazon could come in and be like, well, we'll just make the deal so incredibly like in your favor. If you'll give us some, like maybe Amazon's like, we'll just, just, you know, we'll give you like a much better deal. If you pull your stuff off Spotify or whatever, you know what I mean? Like right, right. there's all sorts of scenarios I can imagine where the result is you wake up one day and you know, the entire whatever Fleetwood Mac catalog is suddenly gone and then from your yeah, iTunes totally. or your, I mean from your Spotify yep. and then you're like, well, wait a fucking minute. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, and that's exactly what, what this, happened. You know? I mean, you compared it to the film industry and that's what happened with Netflix. And I remember there was a time with Netflix where it was, that was pretty much the only streaming service. And then all of a sudden people like Disney started pulling their content and creating their own streaming service. 
uh, that would be and so that now if you want to watch all your favorite tv shows you have to subscribe to netflix and hulu and hbo and so i i do see that is a little worrisome and gosh i hope yeah. that doesn't happen well ultimately like all these companies all these services spotify and deezer and apple and title amazon youtube they're all offering us the exact same thing you mm -hmm. know yeah and so in like an ideal world people would come together as a society and be like you know what like fuck this let's just you know socialize this entire operation turn it into a tax and mm. give it to the library of congress and let them run it oh and make gosh. sure 90 90 percent of the profits for this monthly you know oh my gosh yeah. music tax go to the artists instead of to the fucking salaries of the fucking executives you know what i mean that's like, genius there's a very awesome model out there it's similar to how the bbc was funded back in the you know, yeah. 60, 70 years ago with the TV license. But, Man, that's but you know incredible. what I mean? Like the services are all redundant. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no, they have this like kind of fake competition where they're like, you know, they tried the, they tried the exclusivity where it was like, if you want the Kanye record, you got to be on title. Yeah, yeah, that, didn't yeah, that didn't work. And now they're like, they're like, it's our playlists that make you want to be here. Right. But playlists, playlist culture will come and go, I think probably pretty quickly, you know, like there's right. already a lot of cracks in it. A lot of, a lot of it. I feel like there's manipulations going on that will probably be disclosed at some point. That's right. It could you be know? like, it could be like the new radio. Yeah. And at the same time, you're like, certainly, you know, I mean, from a label point of view, you know, we, you know, I don't, I like, I don't really have the consumer experience that consumers have because, you know, we have all these things. I couldn't imagine paying for Apple and Spotify and like another one, you know? Mm. So if these companies are competing for me, you know, um, mm. but they're offering the same thing and, and, or they're like, you know, ours is like, you know, the quality is better or the interface is better, or we've added like a social media element, you know, so you can see what your friends are what, listening to or whatever, like all that's just kind of window dressing. And yeah, at the end true. of the day, yeah. they're all the same. They're all just offering the same thing. So I just think like, man, that's a really you know, interesting theory. Nate strip the profit out of the whole thing and turn all that money over to the artists nope. you know, or the rights, the rights holders. Is who it I think with, that, uh, that kind of, uh, um, government model, I mean, it makes so much sense. It would be a, a great way to, to, to put money into, um, instead of, you know, a few wealthy people, it puts money into the, the, the artist pocket. I think that's a really interesting, it would essentially create jobs. Um, but you but know, this is America, man. but this like, is America. I was just, just going to say, like, I'm sorry to like, say, but you'll, your country will be the last to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, going to happen in would, Finland first and then Canada. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and I don't even know how it would work internationally. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I that's just true. Think, right. Like to me, that's just like, kind of like, it's see, I know, you know exactly. Yeah. And that, had um, thought, like, that makes sense. I think you'd have to kind of build it from the ground up as a nonprofit and essentially like, you know, entice i don't know yeah. i don't know how you do it you yeah. know what i mean but but i want or or like the the streaming miles just kind of like i don't know kind of like well i monopolize down you know like apple or google or someone kind of like buys up enough of them so you're down to like one or two companies and then i don't i don't know i think you know what, what i, mean? I like, like about what i like about streaming and i mean you could speak to this more because you've been in the industry longer but what i like about streaming is that uh, it to see the average uh, North American household spending a um, hundred and whatever you know t uh, nine dollars a month times twelve one hundred and twenty dollars a month or a, a year on music. I feel like that number has to be bigger than it was ten years ago. I, I, I mean, I just can't imagine. There are some people who I know who have Spotify memberships, and there's no way one hundred and twenty dollars. That's that's like what is that? Uh, maybe eight CDs, eight or eight or ten CDs, uh, ten years ago or twenty years ago. I, I can't, I can't imagine that they were spending that much on recorded music. So I, I just feel like, to me, one of the positives is seeing um, so many people committing one hundred and twenty dollars a year to music. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. That would be interesting to try to figure out if like people in 1985 the average household was spending more you know yeah I don't on know. music because the um you know like going back as far as like you know the the day when you could go to you know the mall and walk by two different 
music stores that were selling mostly, you know, tapes and records. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, it's a, like, mm. like we don't have the ability to sort of spontaneously, like, you know, apart, apart from, you know, people like you and me who probably still spend a lot of money on records, you mm. know, or, or mm. at least I do, yeah. but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like apart from the junkies and the heads <laughs> who like have kind of ignored the whole last 20 years and yeah. just continue to buy records and order records. Totally. And, you know, now we have eBay and Discogs, but pretty much nothing's changed. Um, you know, but those, those space, you know, the whole culture of, you know, the music store and, you know, all like the ability to, to make a purchase based on, you know, something you just heard on the radio mm-hmm. or I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what people, it's a good question. Like uh, the average household, that's, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. You know? I, I'm curious and, and I can look it up. An artist Certainly of yours... there will be a point if those companies continue to grow, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where that will certainly be the case, mm-hmm. you know. And I, mean, I just think it, to me, it's a vote for your, uh, you know, your taxing option. Um, right. Because it's like, well, you know, most, not most, but a lot of households are, are paying for music in a way that they probably haven't paid for it before. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you can make that, it's the same, you can buy, you can use the same concept with like health insurance, you know, like people in like the, the dipshits in America who are against, you know, universal healthcare, like, you know, like think about the, the how much money it's going to fucking cost to like mm-hmm. have the government run the health, you know, our healthcare and like the tax increase. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, but look at what you're paying. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, the amount, you know, as a, as like essentially a freelancer, you know, as someone who doesn't have like a, a company, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. helping me with my health insurance, like the amount of money I pay, you know, right. I'm sure whatever tax increase would come along with that would be a fraction right. compared to what I'm actually giving to these, you know, private insurance companies. Oh, so, for sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. kind of a similar thing. You're like, if you're already spending 120, you know, 200 bucks a year on music, well, if we can like make that a, a you know, a 10, $10, a, you know, $5 a month tax or whatever, yeah. you know, f- yeah. like, it's not even a tax. It's like you you can still opt into it, of course, or whatever. Right. But it's interesting. I yeah, I know. I if if any, uh, there's probably some uh, conservative listeners who have already shut this off. But um, it's uh, it is an interesting conversation. I, I think it, I think it's an interesting point, and I bet you Finland will probably or or Norway will probably do it first. Well, ultimately, like you know, it, the idea, the, the motivation behind it is like there's really no reason for the majority of the money that's generated by streaming to not go to the artists, you know, mm-hmm. because the, and at the moment it doesn't as oh, far as I yeah, can tell, yeah. you know? And, um, I don't know to, to go back to your question. My other sort of issue with streaming that I find like where there's room to potentially like switch the game up a bit is, and I could be totally wrong about this. So, <laughs> so let me just put it out there. But my understanding of the way the revenue models work or the way the um, artist share models work is, you know, if you, Scott, are spending $10 a month on Spotify and you only listen to um, John Prine, you know, or you only listen to the lowest pair, you know, Team Love's great, you know, bluegrass (laughs) duo, you know, for that month, you know, $9.98 of your, of your, Monthly just fee to them. is going to go to um, Kanye and go to oh, Taylor. Right. I see what you mean. And yeah. go to yeah. it's done on a you know percentage, it's split percentage wise. You know, mm-hmm. so and that makes like if you look at it, you know, on on paper, you're like, oh, of course. Like if Taylor Swift is is generating twenty percent of all the plays on Spotify, then she of course would should receive twenty percent of the right. revenue, right? right? But but where that model breaks down is where you look at it from the other the other side of the you know of the lens where if you're the lowest pair or you know whoever you know mm-hmm. what I mean yeah. and and like Scott is is listening to only that music in the in the month um, then you know you would think, well, wouldn't it be neat if like my $10 went to the band I'm actually listening to? Right. Because ten, if, if, if that band made $10 in a month from Spotify, that would like, you know, that would be like a, a 
you know, a million percent increase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? Oh yeah. Over especially the, if they have the four cents or whatever that they probably would get. From especially if they have devoted 50,000 monthly know? listeners or something. And yeah, you yeah. know what I'm saying? So, oh, yeah. Yeah. so I think there's a way to possibly revolutionize it a little bit by presenting a, you know, bottom up model where you're like, we're going to equate your listening and you're, we're going to connect your listening and your money. And we're going to, and, and it's almost like, it's almost like you are tapping into the, 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 the sentiment or the, the thing that makes Bandcamp work or yeah, Kickstarter right, work, right, you know, right. well, it's I like think you're that, yeah. supporting, mm-hmm. you're supporting the artists you like through our model. And we are going to make sure that what, what you, your $10 only goes to the re- records you listen to. Cause what that will do is all the tiny, tiny little artists, you know, who uh-huh. only are getting you know, like a thousand plays or under a thousand plays a month, uh-huh. like they will see their, their shit go up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that's um, really interesting. I think, and that I could think work. if you could, if you could present it, you know, if you started it kind of like on the indie level and we're like, you know, got a bunch of indie labels to kind of like create a new platform. And it was like, you know, this is what we're doing. Um, at least you could start there with like a bunch of like loyal music fans, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. And like, and, and test it out and see how it works, you know? And you may not ever need to go get the major label catalogs involved, you know, because similar to Bandcamp, it could just be something that exists in, you know, in the, in the indie world or yeah. whatever in the, yeah. in the non, in the non corporate world. So, but I don't know. There's That's probably a million reasons why that wouldn't work. Well, know, and, but, and yeah, and there are, I've seen some articles coming out about that and, and talking about that model. I, I, yeah, I'm I'm weary because I, I'm open to see some change um, where, you know, moderate artists are doing well, but I'm I'm weary because the change could also be bad. It's like getting a new neighbor. Could be good. It could be bad. Yeah. So, I'm, you know, a little worried about that. Um, an artist of yours who reached out to us to, to reach out to you actually had some incredible things to say about you. And, and they said that they trust you 100%. That's not something you always hear from artists about their label. What's, what is it about your, your label? And I won't keep you much longer. I know you got to work out. What is your label philosophy that, that evokes someone to say that about you? Uh, gosh. <laughs> um, well, we try to be honest, of course, you know, yeah. um, we're pretty scrappy, you know, like we, um, you know, we're, we're pretty small. There's two of us, you know, that wow. work there, um, full time, you know what I mean? So we um we have a lot going on at any given time and and we but really like we i don't know like we try to figure out like where we can help the artists and we focus on that you know what i mean like right. so um you know every artist will come in and say you know help me get a booking agent and we'll be like uh you know like <laughs> I wish, you know, like, yeah. like to the point where like, we're like about once every six months, we're like, we got to start a booking agency, you know, <laughs> like we got to convince some like great agent, like who's burned out to like move up to the Hudson Valley and just get a little <laughs> side gig going because that would solve this problem, you know? Yeah. But, um, but so anyone listening, like, yeah. do it, you know? <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, we've had, we've had relationships go horribly South, you know? So, right. You know, I'm sure there's other people you could talk to who'd be like those guys, you know, but, but, um, but we've always, whenever there's been like a sort of like pro, you know, where we've come to like an impasse or where us and the artists are on very opposite, viewing things very differently, you know, through Mm -hmm. different lenses, we always try at that point to, you know, let it go and, you know, just not hold the artist hostage or yeah, that's you know, amazing. Just, just kind of be like, well, you know, cause sorry. it's okay you to have, I mean? di- like, it's okay to have differences. It's okay to not see eye to eye. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's tough because like, you know, too much of being like the good guy or whatever, you know, can ruin the label. You know what I mean? Mm. Like there's certain things that like are required to keep the label running. And one of them is like, you know, making money. Yeah. And, no, it's true. Yeah. And sometimes That's like that point. alone can be enough to like create conflict, you yeah. know, but great. But, point. um, but we, you know, and also like we, I don't know, like we really like work with artists that we have very strong, like feelings about in terms of people, you know, mm-hmm. like who they are Smart. and we don't, well, like, you know, 
we'll definitely like, I wouldn't say pass on something because it's not like we're like in the running for it, but there's a lot of, you know, things that kind of are out there that we could be aggressively pursuing if we had like some sort of strategy where, you know, success was the goal, you know, but like we prefer to kind of let things kind of unfold more organically. And the artists that seem to come into our life, um, through whatever strange little doors they, they stumble through, like (laughs) our, our, um, you know, just they kind of touch us, you know, in a way where we're like, we really want to help you and we love your music and we are, you know, are into this. Like if, if they're into it, then, you know, that's that's what yeah, happens that's so. great that's beautiful thanks so much for doing this man it's been so great to talk to you and and uh I have, fun. I have so much uh, respect for your label so i really appreciate you doing this you're welcome scott thank you everyone for listening and please subscribe and um if you haven't already and please continue to share this episode and our podcast with people who you think would be interested in this please continue to share it on social media it's really helpful uh, and don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash other songs for some uh, episodic uh, takeaway videos that, uh, that I do. So thanks again for listening. More to come. <laughs>